welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the materials cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series. Welcome to IOM3 Investigates. I'm Catherine Williams, Head of Content at IOM3, and my guests today all have an interest in the foundation industry. They'll help us explore the importance of the foundation in underpinning the UK economy. Our guests are Cameron Playdell Pierce from Swansea University, Graham Hillier from the Foundation Industry Sustainability Consortium, and Chris McDonald at MPI. The foundation industries are truly the foundation of the UK economy and have played a part ever since the Industrial Revolution. But so guys, would you like to talk about why the foundation industries matter to you and how you got involved with them? Uh, and shall we start with Graham on that? Yeah, go on then. I'll, I'll start. Yeah, um, just bear with me because I'll, I better tell you a bit about my background. Um Because I've spent probably about 30 years of my working life working in the foundation, in, mostly in the chemicals industry but also in construction as well. Uh, but in the, la- the recent past, I started work at the Centre for Process Innovation at the beginning of its existence. And we was creating it as an innovation, so acted as strategy director. Now, I'm mostly retired from CBI, and these days I am chairing a thing called the Foundation Industry Sustainability, which is a grouping of five of the innovations. And um, I think probably, so that grouping is the Materials Processing Institute, which obviously Chris works, the, uh, the ROICE, the Centre for Process Innovation, so CPI, the um, Glass Futures, which is the new innovation centre for the glass industry, just being created, and Lucidius of Ceramics Industries. And the reason that that grouping got brought together was because there was an understanding that um, the issues that the foundation industries face are common, that they are the bedrock of our society. In actual fact, we can't really build a house or make a car or create a personal care product or anything like that without the foundation supporting them but that those industries weren't being looked after from an innovation point. And they also have these challenges of the fact that they, they are quite strong emitters. But if we don't have cement or concrete or ceramics or chemicals or, uh, or glass, we can't actually make anything. And, and the common issues that, that we identified were to do with the circular economy, with the reduction of emissions and the more efficient from fuels. And we'll come back to all of a minute, but the idea was that those centres could actually together make a contribution and pick up ideas that have come out of the research community and help prove them and take them into, but also link into the community itself. So I won't waffle on for any longer about myself, particular aspect. Of- Lovely. Thank you. And Cameron, how about you? Uh, yeah, so I guess I'll start with the background as well, just so that the viewers have got an idea of where we're all coming from. So I, I, I started actually working um, with, the, with the aerospace sector. So my background started working on developing metals for aerospace jet engine applications with Rolls-Royce. Um, and then I took a, did that for about eight years, and then I took a bit of a swerve into the into the steel sector. Um, and I've 
to be honest, never look back uh, from there. Uh, there is no more exciting place to work, especially at the moment. And I guess we'll come on to this as we get through the uh, the discussion than, than, than the UK metal sector and, and in my case, uh, the sector. So um, I started working in that area in about 2012. Um, and then during that time, sort of started to develop a, a portfolio of projects supporting the industry, which ultimately culminated with the, um, the establishing the establishment of Sustain Future Steel Manufacturing Research Hub, which is a collection of universities and steel in the UK looking at the long-term decarbonisation and competitiveness challenges for, for the industry from a fundamental research perspective. So more looking at the long-term research goals for the industry rather than the innovation challenges, I guess, Graham and uh, in the, the areas that they um, and then um, actually not too long after we started that program, now about three and that started in, but not too long after we started that, um, I worked together with Sheffield Leeds, uh, Manchester uh, on the development of the Transforming Foundation Industries Network Plus, which was kind of that precursor to what Graham was talking about there, about trying to bring, bring that community together. So we did a lot of work uh, running events and, and working with the community to bring people together. And we also feed corn funding into that as well. So we funded 33 uh, individual small projects of, of around about sort of £50,000, a six-month little project. Um, and we use that to explore all of these different potential opportunities um, that, that Graham was talking about. Um, I think these are the things that I'm going to draw on as we get the, the podcast. Chris, how about you? Um, hi, Catherine. Um, thanks for asking me to join the podcast. So, yes, I'm Chris McDonald, um, and as has already been fairly widely trailed, um, I'm the Chief Executive of the Materials Processing Institute. And we've heard from Graham and from Cam a bit about the various different sectors in the foundation industries, because it's a multi-industry, uh, a multi-sector, multi-sector industry, but maybe just to truck through them. So we think of the foundation industries of thinking, uh, uh, consisting essentially of six materials-based products. We've got glass, ceramics and paper, cement, metals and chemicals. Um, and most of my experience has been in the metal sector and in the steel industry in particular. Um, and uh, in fact, the Institute I'm working, we're, we're a big uh, innovation provider for the metal sector in the UK, but actually our single biggest project is in the cement sector where we're looking at green cement. So um, so I think as Graham outlined, lots of the challenges in these in these sectors are very common and we can apply our uh, common skill sets to, um, uh, to that as well. Uh, and we've heard I think from Cameron and from Graham about some of the challenges in those sectors, but there's one other one other thing I wanted to mention as well, which is about skills. Um, and actually, Graham and Cameron and me have known each other for a very long time and enjoyed working really closely together in collaboration. Graham spent a lot of time in industry and innovation. I mostly spent my career in innovation. Cameron spent his his career uh, primarily in academia. And but this is how we solve problems in the foundation industries. It's it's universities, institutes, industry coming together to develop new technology and solve these problems. And, and it, I think this shows that the foundation industry sector can provide really rewarding long-term careers with, with opportunities for personal growth as well, otherwise it wouldn't be. Um, but my, you know, my career started in industry, moved into innovation. For the last few years, I've spent quite a bit of time doing public policy because it's a big crossover between um, policy and foundation industries. And, and my next step is to go into politics. Um, but for me, it's all essentially um, uh, 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 about the foundation industries. So I'll hopefully be representing a seat. Stockton North, where we've got a massive chemicals cluster and lots of industry. And the big challenges there are how we keep those jobs, how we decarbonise, um, how we introduce new investment and new technology. And that's actually all of the issues I've been grappling with over the last 20 years as well. So, so there's big crossover between people and policy and politics and industry and innovation in this sector, like no other sector. Um, and, and so it does provide those rewarding careers, but we want to attract more people into the industry too. 
Thank you. So given how fundamental the foundation industries are to our lives, which Graham explained, and Chris, you've talked about the skills and the employment and so on. Do you think that we as a society, the general public, value and understand what the foundation industries are? And do you think there needs to be more communication in the public about the fundamental importance of these materials and the roles they play within the UK? I think people are subliminally aware of how important the foundation industries are because they know that their house is made of bricks and that bricks are held together by cement and it's painted on the inside and they've got a carpet, which they might not actually know the carpet's off, but they, they know their window frames are made of plastic and they know their windows are made of glass. But I don't think we understand effectively where those things come from. So the UK makes between 30 and 40% of its all the foundation industry products it consumes that means it has to import the rest from somewhere else and and the other problem we face in the uk is that that we don't recycle these particularly effectively we collect them up but then we tend to put them on a ship and send them away so i think i think we're aware that the foundation industries but i'm not entirely sure that people value them to the extent that they realize that we have to get them from somewhere we can't like i say build houses without these these products so if we don't have access, and in the geopolitical world we're in at the moment, then easily getting hold of them, not quite as simple as it was probably even just 18 months, then, then we, need to, we need to understand how we get them and where they come from a bit more. Than, not everybody needs that, clearly, but, but the, the industries and the politicians and the investors. I think as well this is like a sort of a particular problem in the UK, actually. Um, you know, we, when I work with people in other countries, it's been quite such an issue. Um, and you know, so the language, this has been talked about a bit now. There's been a, you know, there's been some some stuff written about this by journalists about um, supply lines for for exotic materials like lithium and cobalt around the world and all that kind of stuff. We might get on to talk about that. But but I'm I've become much more of a champion of the quite unsexy stuff as well. So the word commodities, I think, has been somewhat disparaged over many years. But commodities are the stuff that enable us to live our lives. Um, and, and stay alive, in fact. And I think we saw this a bit during the pandemic when, you know, we'd spent years offshoring our commodity manufacturers. We thought it was like, you know, we'd get something a penny cheaper somewhere else. But suddenly we discover, you know, we, we can't get bricks because almost all of our bricks are support, imported from Spain. Or, or do you remember at the start of the pandemic, everyone mass buying toilet paper because actually all of our toilet paper comes from Spain and Italy as well. Um, or just out, just the road from me, actually in Stockton North, which I mentioned earlier, um, is, a, is a chemicals factory that was producing... Um, some of the first COVID vaccines, but they couldn't bottle it in the UK because we didn't have um, sufficient production of glass vials. Um, so it's that you know you can produce all of the sort of amazing high tech vaccines you want, but if you can't actually put them in a the bottle, you can't get them in somebody's arm. Um, so I, I think that we do need a bit of a realization that just because something's inexpensive, it doesn't mean it's of low value. And actually, if it is inexpensive, it's probably because People like Cameron and Graham and myself have spent our whole lifetime trying to make the process of manufacturing more efficient um, so that these things can can, um, can really support people's quality of life too. So, so I think there does need to be a shift there about the, the relationship between cost and value and what we value in our, our economy isn't necessarily the stuff most expensive, it's the stuff we need. Yeah, I was going to add to that that I think um, one of the interesting things is that it's, Chris, you pointed out that it, it's not necessarily equal 
um, between different countries, or you look at different countries, or you look at you look at us, you get different responses. I think also if you looked at different regions across the UK, you get different levels of understanding, um, and that's really because in certain areas it's visible. So there's a, there's a there's a there's a visceral connection that exists between Steel and Teesside and Scunthorpe and Portalbert, and and so those people understand where that material comes from because they see it in front of them. I guess there's the question of visibility. There is kind of important. And we should be asking ourselves from within the foundation industries looking out, not just why don't people understand more or why don't they engage, but also what more can we do to make these processes visible? You know, and, and as Graham pointed out, the sources are real as well. So I think there's a, there's a sort of a, there's a balance there that needs to be struck between the wider population and how much they, they understand of the cereals and how they're made and also how much we're projecting that to them and explaining it to them. I, I think there's another angle to this as well. I, I think one of the reasons that the UK um, struggles with these um, products is that uh, the, um, they're perceived to be to create loads of emissions and loads of mess and, and loads of carbon dioxide. And OK, they do emit these things. Um, but it doesn't alter the fact that you still need them. So therefore, there's a huge amount of work, and definitely all three of us do a lot of work on trying to make those processes more sustainable and reduce the emissions that from increase the efficiency of the production of the products that are manufactured by them. And I think it's... I, I, I actually think that policy in the UK is often driven by knee-jerk reaction to feelings, and we think steel and glass and concrete are dirty so therefore we shouldn't be making them and and i just think that it's absolutely completely wrong what we should be doing is making them as efficiently and effectively as we can and the work that chris's team do on the next generation of cements and concrete and the work that cam's team do on how we're going to make steel more effectively how we're going to recycle it more how we're going to use hydrogen even so that we can reduce the emission the carbon emission and all of my teams work across boundaries about how can they get more circularity? How can they get alternative fuels in? How can they optimize so they work better? How can they use the digital world, which is a massive opportunity? And again, all three of us work in that. How do you use artificial intelligence or machine learning or even just better process control to optimize the way things work? So there's making these things better because we have to have them is a massive opportunity for and And we kind of, try and export it to somewhere else rather than take it on ourselves. And there's a massive opportunity because our research is great and our innovation is good. And our plants, many of our plants are great as well. It, it's not as if we're rubbish at this. It's just that we could be significantly better. But, but even then, I mean, like perception. So the worst case in an integrated site, poor environmental, but, but B, and you associate that with, with, with smokestacks. Yeah, and, and big columns, the air and all this. You associate that with, with lush cows only in the pasture. And, and, and there needs to be more effective of the facts around. Yeah, I mean, there's probably more chance of me cutting back on steel than beef, I have to say, uh, in terms of reducing my carbon footprint. But uh, uh, one of the things, just, just picking up on those points, one of the things that frustrates me as well, and I, I don't know if you guys find this, but when you hear um, politicians um, saying that the UK is sort of the world leader in cutting emissions because we've cut emissions by 50% since uh, 1990. But then it turns out half of that is basically offshoring. So, you know, our ter territorial emissions, we're still doing well, actually. We've cut our territorial emissions by 25%, which is better than most European countries. Um, but, but it's not, you know, the 50% is completely delusional, actually. 
Uh, and what we've done is we've offshored those emissions and we've offshored the jobs and we've offshored the national security associated with that. And to get back to Graham's point, of course, if instead we kept them here, we'd now be investing in new green technology and new digital technology. So they'd be digitising, we'd be going green, we'd be improving productivity, we'd be creating great jobs um, in, in these industries too. So I think, um, I think, yeah, I think this perception issue, to come back to where you started, Catherine, has created a bit of an economic problem for us as well. Um, where we've neglected and then gradually offshore these industries. Graham, you touched on the fact that um, rather than recycling things in the UK, we're exporting them to be recycled. How could we do that better? What, what could we be doing in the UK to improve circularity and to... You know, use because in a lot of ways we already use um, demolition waste and so on in producing new materials. But how how can we get better at the circularity side of things? In the yeah, the, the other guys I'm sure will have really good things to say about this. But I, I I don't think I think our supply chains are often quite fragmented, and, and the product needs to go from a different. So a waste processing company is very different from a steel manufacturing company or a cement manufacturing company. Um, and, and we need to get all of those groups to work together. A lot of the bits of technology exist, but I think there's a, there's a kind of social and behavioural thing here. <clears throat> I was lucky enough to be at the Foundation Industry Forum that Transfire organised earlier this week. And that was really good because we had industrialists, academics and innovation people all in the same room sharing ideas. But one of the industrial people there said that they have a problem recycling and reusing one of their main feeds because they can't persuade the waste company to put it into four different piles. They get it in one pile and that contains four different things. And they can't, if, it, if, they, if somebody bothered to split it up into four different piles, they could use it to make higher value products and better products. And um, one of the paper companies said to me that some of the recycle, they're entirely based on recycled paper. Um, but the paper they get is often too high quality for what they want. And they have to separate out the high quality and burn it because they can't use it. So I think there's, there's by getting people to collaborate and work together more, I think we can make big strides forward. Now, there are science and technologists as well that are important, like the other guys, them as well. But, but there are processes and using existing technology and in existing companies that if we could get the supply chains to then we'd be able to do and to give a, a name check to glass futures who are the innovation center for the glass industry based in st helens which is goes with cam's point of people that associate with certain products in certain places um they've done a very good job of getting the entirety of their supply chain from the material supplier to the material processor to the user and the big companies that bottle and distribute and sell products so, so they are working very hard on getting all those companies to understand one another's needs and closing the loops up so that they can recycle more and be more effective. So if we could collaborate more if, uh, and be actually change the behaviours of the way we operate. There are some opportunities for new businesses as well. I think you know, we're, we're seeing that. That's quite tricky as well because the, the, you know, the big brain is saying there about people collaborating. There needs to be that collaboration in the supply chain to create the opportunity for this as well, otherwise, because people do have to change their business model. Um, but there is opportunity for new businesses. So there's a, a, at our campus here at the Materials Processing Institute in Teesside, um, small startup businesses or medium-sized businesses who, who find our services useful sometimes choose to co-locate with us. 
And we've got a business that's been with us for sort of five, six years now called Binding Solutions. And they have a technology for recycling uh, what previously been thought of as waste materials from mines and iron ore mines and steel plants. Um, and they've managed to attract the developing process, they've managed to attract significant investment, but they haven't to develop the market at the same time they're developing the technology. And that's actually a really big challenge in the, in the circular economy area. And maybe just to give you another example, I know so everyone talks about car batteries all the time, but we're working on them. I'm sure Cameron is, is where you are, aren't you, Cameron? Where you are, aren't you, Cameron? Um, and, and the difficulty is there's huge amounts of valuable materials going into car batteries, and we're going to have millions and millions of these things coming to the ends of their life at some point, and we have to decide what to do, to do about it. And, you know, some of this is a technology problem where we've got sort of this black mass or sort of, you know, shredded material that's all mixed up, and we need to figure out how to separate it and so on. And we can solve the technology problem, you know, between Cameron's team and my team, we can do that, it's not a problem. But, uh, but ultimately, we need to solve the kind of economic business model problem that means the business wants to set up to recover that material and sell it, they can get good value for it, they can sell it back into a supply chain as well. So this, this whole issue of the circular economy, is, it, it's bigger than technology, it's bigger than the it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a regulation issue, it's a supply chain issue, it's an economy issue. Yeah, I'd say... Um... I'll flag. I'm not personally working on battery materials because I've got my hands full with metals on its own, but uh, or some of the, the larger commodity metals, I would say. But um, but they're definitely colleagues in in the and, and other universities are definitely worth this as well. I think um, there's a fundamental mindset set shift that has to occur here, and it is about being better custodians of. Ultimately, that's what it comes down to. We need to cherish the what I would call secondary raw materials. So rather than stuff that we the stuff that we get out of the ground, but those anthropogenic sources that come back from we just need to be better. And that's ultimately that's ultimately the goal. Certain elements of those waste streams at the moment are not as well segregated, has already been highlighted by, by Graham and Chris. Not as well segregated as they can and that represents a technology challenge, but it it, re- it represents a technology challenge that can be solved. Um and and we, we can point to two a demonstrator project that came through the Transforming Foundation Industries Challenge one, uh, that I'm running around Scrap and Swansea that's looking at building that supply chain trust and verification between between steelmakers and scrap suppliers and, and the one that Chris alluded to earlier on that's going on up at MPI looking at a similar principle connecting the steelmaking and cement uh, product, uh, supply chain. So, so we can demonstrate through those projects that those technological solutions are there to help us solve some of those problems. But beyond that, we need to eliminate some of those problems systematically as well. And I think that's where it just becomes more, becomes more about being good custodians. And I think that's about climbing right to the, the supply chain, to, to those OEMs and ultimately and, and driving behavior back down um, and looking at closing that loop from the production back, uh, the production of the original material, the production of the and use of the product and then coming back round again. And that might negate to an extent, some of the technical challenges that were the existing end-of-life material. So it's a two-pronged approach. I do think we lack a bit of a strategy that we need. You know, if, if there's a general appreciation or understanding, and it doesn't even need to be legislated to be policy and strategy, that says we really do want to keep these materials and use them and we value their existence. Uh, and that then leads into a way of integrating the way the academics go about the work and the way that us as innovators go about the work and how that fits with the companies. Because I do think that one of the reasons we lose some of the, the foundation industry companies is because the UK is not perceived as a good place to be. 
it's perceived to be a great place to do the science and a great place to do the innovation, but it isn't perceived. And on the basis of the science and innovation we do, we could be world leaders in sustainable materials from the foundations and just by putting more effort into what we know and actually putting a lot of effort in, into getting people to talk to another. Because one of the things that's that's happened in this Foundation Industry Sustainability Consortium, they're running a big project called Economize. And we have three people there who the Royce Institute are employing, who we call fellows, and they're quite mature, experienced industry people. And all their job is, is to go and talk to the people who have a problem, identify what the problem is, and bring it back and see if it can get solved. And it's brought things into the academic space. And Cameron has started, was, you know, we're talking to Cam now, so we're starting to get those, that kind of relationship going. And obviously we're, we're, we're linking with Transfire. But with three or four really quite exciting projects about next generation refractory, about how you test and prove that geopolymers are successful, how the UK might, which one, one applies to all three of us, is how we might move forward with our alloy development implementation. Those have just come out of experienced people talking to one another. Uh, and, and if that was kind of something we were actually trying to do, we knew that we were trying to recover more, trying to resell more, trying to keep, trying to generate the next generation of processes. And that was a national desire rather than something that we do because we think it's great and, and it's important for a personal reason, then I think we'd be, we'd be in a better place because we've got so many of the jigsaw piece. What we don't have is the picture of how to join all those, those pieces together and, and have a huge impact. I mean, that's a sweeping generalisation, I have to say, but, but you get the gist of what I'm saying. It's a, it's a generalisation, but I, I don't disagree. I mean, we see this. I, I reckon Chris would agree with this. I'll let him comment on his own. But I, I think we see this because before we, we can look at solving the problem um, that we face with it, so we might get a big pile of stuff all mixed together. It doesn't really matter what material stream is. The, the challenges appear to be consistent, irrespective of that, right? But um, but we get this big pile of material, and then we do something to try and sort it out. But at the same time, we're, we, we always have to ask ourselves the question, where is it coming from? And answering that question, and how did it get here? And answering that question is always really hard. So every time you do one of these projects, even from a research perspective, you spend as much time trying to map what we call the material flow analysis, so where all of this material is coming from, and how it's getting there, as you do actually solving the problem of, of, of it having arrived in that place altogether at the same time in and of itself. So so we see that. I mean, I, I definitely think from the research perspective, we see that data. Yeah, I mean, I, of course, I, I'd agree with you, Cameron, and I think that that problem of, is, is compounded by the sort of complex nature of modern products as well. Um, so particularly, you know, you know, digital products or a lot of the products that are required for the green revolution uh, fundamentally are more complex in terms of their materials composition and they require much more exotic materials as well um, that, that previously might have been in short supply or, or currently now their processing is probably almost exclusively tied up in China as well, actually. Um, so that then makes the server economy a bit harder because at the design stage, no one's really considered about disas considered disassembly or recycling. And that's something that Martin Dominic and his team are you know, trying to do something about at uh, UCL. They're trying to work on that. Um, but also, I think I'd, I'd reflect on the point that Graham made as well about how we've got this amazing research base in the UK and it, it could lead us to us having an embedded foundation industry. And I think this links back to our point of perception because I, I mentioned China there and I think everybody presumes this is our competitor in this sector. But actually, mostly we're competing with similar European nations, certainly in steel, our, our big importing countries are, are from, from the EU, you know, Germany, the Netherlands, and so on. 
And so we have to ask ourselves as a country, I think, if we can't compete in these in, with other high-cost nations in Europe, then really there's something fundamentally wrong. There's no excuse for this. We should be able to do this, particularly as, as we have an advantage in science. Now. And that comes down to the business environment that we create in the UK that is welcoming and friendly to investors uh, to, to do business here and, and give them the long-term certainty that they'll, they'll generate appropriate return as well. But if we get that right, there's no reason why we, we couldn't have an edge over our European really well in these it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because you mentioned, Chris, earlier on about how we've gone through a process of deindustrialization as much as as much as decarbonisation in in the UK um, and offshore, and and so that presents both the opportunity for growth now that we don't have that, but also part of the problem about how that growth is actually delivered. Because, of course, we don't have those intrinsic supply chains, you know, doing the circular economy over large distance and very, very complicated international supply chains is, is obviously intrinsically harder. So, unfortunately, we have gaps in the area of engineering and manufacturing and the thing you need to build to be able to, to develop the supply chains to get, you know, to, to get these new technologies in. Um, that's, a, that's one of the reasons why we're going to find it harder in, in here than we would in other areas that have, that have preserved that industrial and preserve that industrial base to a greater degree than we have. Of course, you look at that on the flip side and you say, well, that's an opportunity for growth for the UK then. It, it makes it harder, but it also makes the win, you can do it right, larger than it would be in other cases. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Like, and, I, I, and I think that I think the fact that we have deindustrialized so much offers an opportunity to us because we've tended to talk about how you make what we've got now better. That's what we've talked about for most of the time we've been talking. But but there's an opportunity for a new generation of processes. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's easy, easier to make this transition with a green, so-called greenfield site, you know, with, a, with, a, with an out-of-the-box factory, as it were. Um, that's true. And I think, you know, in the steel sector, there's an example of this. So, you know, steel sector is like half the size that it was, you know, 20 years ago. And so we, we talked a lot about how we transition our existing steel plants to green steel. Um, but equally, you know, we've got the chance to grow capacity as well, and that could be by by increasing the number of steelplants that we have in the UK. So we don't really talk about that at all, actually, Graham. Now that you've reminded me, um, so there is an opportunity for, for to do um, to do the sort of step change that we need to do in the industry in two different ways. This is so. This is a, a very personal opinion. This isn't representing anything other than my own <laughs> wacky thoughts. But but I think the new generation of processes we need need to be smaller and more flexible and closer to market. You know, the economy of scale that we used to build in four or five million ton steelworks is it's kind of gone now because our market isn't growing quickly. Our market's relatively stable. And that means that you should be able to build a, a new kind of plant that's, that's smaller, more flexible, lower capital. It's digitally brilliant so that it operates unbelievably. And I mean, I, I, the example I'd give you is is not from the foundation industries. It's It's from brewing, which are a bioprocessing fermentation plant. And there are hundreds of breweries and distilleries in the UK now that operate on a, a domestic scale, like, you know, like for, for not even whole cities or towns, much smaller communities than that. And they're built on smart, established technology with fantastic process control put together into a package where you can build one and operate it. And certainly the chemical industry, because brewing is a chemical process, could go could go down that route, and I can, I can see I can see it happening for for things that we would think currently of more energy intense than that as well. And certainly, Cam's team 
do work in this space and i know chris's team do work in this space and and everybody in in my consortium does work in this space but it's very difficult to get it adopted in the uk because again we we tend to want to do what we've always done rather than do the, the new thing that might change us even though we invented the new thing and i, I think that's another there's another angle to this whole foundation industry space which much smaller more local more integrated plants where the waste from one go into the feedstock for another etc we see lots of examples of that coming through the the network not least from our our own director ian reenie's group who, who look for example at a totally different way of producing ceramics in, in, a, in a very low temperature very low energy form and and you think well that's when you when you talk to their group about this, you're like, why is no one doing this already? You know, this is obvious. You know, because because the, the energy benefit and the CO two reduction is so monstrously enormous. There's a a large activation and implementation in the UK, and we need to look at the the, the, the public policy levers that we used to try and that about getting to, about using an overly technical metaphor I, I think that's a great metaphor Cameron but then I know what it means um so yeah well, you're, you're right it's a kind of like a barrier to entry thing isn't it um for new technology in the UK and, and this is something we all talk about in the innovation sector which is why why we're really good at getting innovations to a point that are then implemented yeah I think you've been able to um, and I think Graham's right. You know, there's there's a, there's a big shift in economies of scale in these industries now. So you know, the last the last massive round of investment in was sort of 40 years ago or so, a bit more maybe. Um, so a lot of it was state led. Some of it was like multinational corporate led. And these were like massive integrated, you know, uh, businesses with um, uh, whole towns dependent on. Uh, the modern state of the foundation industries is very different to that. You know, you you, you see a you know, regular size factory without big smokestack chimneys. Um, it's digitized, you know, it's automated. Um, it's more flexible, it's more focused on, um, you know, producing individual products at individual times rather than generic products. Um, so I think I think there is an opportunity for this this new new investment to happen in a, in a different way. Um, so long as we don't sort of feel like we have to repeat, you know, what, what happened a generation ago, which does seem to be the, the core team. Thank you all for that. Um... I guess the question that comes out of that is, do we have the digital skills to support this type of development? You know, assuming we can find the investment and assuming we can um, continue to drive development. But, you know, skills are something we've been talking about for, again, for years. How do we drive people towards the skill sets we need? So maybe I'd make a shout out for processing skills, actually. Um, and this came out of it, I think, from what Graham said. Um, so the, the first response often what we think of it, when we're to improve efficiency is to say, well, let's digitise it. And you actually see this in the public sector as well. Let's digitise the NHS or dig- digitise the police or something. And, and what people mean is, let's take our existing incredibly inefficient process and just get a computer. Program. But it's still an incredibly inefficient process. And actually, the, the best thing we can do is have great process engines who make processing to improve efficiency. And then, you know, turning that into some sort of AI algorithms that are slightly trivial thing you do at the end. Um, I, uh, so I was just uh, in London this week at a meeting of the all-party group on, uh, on innovation, and I was talking about a paper that, um, that I just launched with the Federation of Small Business, which addresses the issue of in product innovation, process innovation, and uh, processing. So essentially how your manufacturing process versus your business. Um, and we make the point in our paper, and I think it is at this point that we make most of my life, that we, we're very focused on product. Uh, but we forget that we need a way to make them. 
and actually the way that you maybe is having it much more efficient for everybody else. So, so yeah, so I think it's good that we talk about digital skills. They are really important. I'm not saying one thing's more important than, than another, but we forget that actually it's the processing skills that are going to make the project that will create the competitive advantage. Um, and that's that's somewhere something where I would like to attract more people to, to get involved. I think on the skills side, um, it's also about the environment <clears throat> that you create to do that and looking at training people who are coming into the sector. Yes, that's one thing, but it's also, of course, because of the pace of change that we see at the moment, incredibly important to look at how you reskill people as well. Uh, and a lot said about reskilling, like you kind of have to take somebody from who, who worked in one part of a business that might be into a lot of change as a function of all of the drivers that we've discussed so far in this podcast. Um, and and it's kind of assumed that that is some very large, significant shift from they, what they were doing before, nothing to do with that, and then something completely different. But in many cases, actually, the skills that people have developed in the roles that they're in are directly transferable or relatable to other people who are developing new, these new businesses, these new processes in, in other areas. Um, there's an awful lot of people I, I meet who no longer work, for example, and who I used to know who worked in the steel industry, who no longer work in the steel use all of their expertise in places like a water company, for example. Um, and, and so I think there's just this, the bringing together of the foundation industry um, in general offers more of that opportunity for cross-fertilization, which, you know, there, there are a lot of people there already that we could and should be using across the whole sector. Um, and that's going to be dependent on a really good, and I'm, I think Chris or, or Graham might be a better place to comment on how, but that's really going to be reliant on a really good work-based learning structure, vocational, educational, tra- vocational educational training uh, structure. Um, and I hear different levels of enthusiasm, shall we say, on things like apprenticeships and the apprenticeship levy and that sort of stuff about how those sorts of um, but. We need to look again, I think, at the at the environment and, and the structures that they surround the skilling and particularly the reskilling and re redeployment of people. I'd say. I think that. Well, I mean, we've all been skilled a few times, you know? <laughs> and 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 as we've got older, we've we've ended up having to learn how to manage things as well as be technical. So, I mean, the, the, there's all sorts of, of ways of of learning these. And, but and I think we need to just make people when when people are young, they need to know that their careers aren't going to be doing what they thought they were going to be doing and, and having a broad set of skills that to let you think, apply your knowledge. Because I think that's probably it, isn't it? We create loads of knowledge in the UK and the challenge is how do we apply that knowledge? And I think the other thing I'd, I'd add to this discussion we're having here is, is that thinking about systems is something we don't really teach people about because everything's connected to everything else in some way. And, and being able to think about how those systems of supply or systems of construction or manufacture or whatever it is how they work is what will allow us and i think i i think that's one of the most exciting bits how things are related and i i think one addition to that is this this econo- this economizer project i'm working on at the moment that, that brought together these five centers just having a mechanism for people from different industries and different innovation centers to talk to one another has been a revelation <laughs> because They've started talking to one another and they've started realising that they know the answers to one another's problems and that there are skill sets in one organisation that can be applied to a problem in another organisation because it's either been seen before in a different industry or it's been seen before on a different scale. And I think that's, it becomes even more important that the relationship between the innovation centres 
and and cam's researchers get stronger because both it works both ways the researchers can understand more about what needs researching but the innovators can more can understand more about what they actually could achieve in a, a an hour even the way we fund our research is split up into little silos and UKRI are putting quite a lot of work into actually trying to make the, the boundaries break down. I sit on the, the National Circular Economy Initiative Strategic Advisory Group, goes right across UKRI and is targeting how can you get the different research councils to work together to form. But when they start doing that, the next challenge is how do you get the researchers in the institutions to collaborate? And Cam can talk about that because he does that really well with his team. <laughs> but But we're not. We're not set up to work together. We're set up to compete with one another rather than collaborate to be more successful. I agree to a degree in that there's a, um, there's a, 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 a prevailing culture, maybe we should call it that, or a, or a, or a structure that exists that, 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 that doesn't exactly make it completely intuitive to do those things. But I do through through the work that we've collectively done across the different universities involved in the in the network plus you know we have seen that come to fruition through some of the projects that we funded you know we have seen you know um sectors like uh, glass and and steel and the material coming together we have seen people collaborating on common challenges on, on sensors and and process models and things like that we've demonstrated that it can be done um and 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 even to the extent that you know, we had a lot of sessions where we kind of did a similar thing to you were talking about, Graham, even when we started, so back in 2020, which was difficult of it online. And, um, even, at, even at the very the very beginning, we would bring people together. The question is, how do you get it to stick? And it's kind of hard to get it to stick. So you can bring the people together and you get the instant recognition, you get the immediate thing. And it's like, well, if then somebody needs something tangible. You know, people need something tangible that they can work on for a sensible period of time to demonstrate the benefits of these things. I mean, that's what's nice about the demonstrator projects, for example, that came through the Forming Foundation Industries Challenge, in that it gives you know a two-year runway for people to work on something that they actually see in their manufacturing sites being done and making a difference to the way that they do. Um, so those things are important, and I guess to make it a bit more of that. Maybe it'd be helpful to sort of illustrate for listeners as well some of what, what some of these things are that we're talking about that are common across the sectors. So, you know, Cameron mentioned their sensors and, and these industries like glass and ceramics and steel and so on. Um, you know, we, we want to digitise them, but then we need to measure things. And often we're trying to measure things in environments that are more hostile and deep space. So we have to think of how we can make sensors survive there. Um, they generally have massive furnaces, but it's so big that when we want to move from uh, from carbon emitting fuels we can't go to electricity because they're too big they, they just simply wouldn't work so we've got to look at alternative fuels like gas for instance or i was just reading about ammonia before i came on the call here as well as another potential alternative fuel um and, and again everyone's looking at the same sort of furnace design for that and then yeah, yeah i mentioned digitization the other thing about these um facilities is they generate huge amounts of data that, that goes unused so we call this kind of big data and how we analyze that data to improve our our product quality and our processes and so on. Again, it's a common challenge across all these sectors. But really, until Graham's initiative started to pull, you know, the research institutes together, there, there wasn't a huge amount of collaboration amongst these sectors in the UK. I mean, it's really only a few years since the metal sector started to collaborate. It wasn't just sort of steel, aluminium, titanium, etc. Um, so it's really quite a recent development, and we're already through the through the network, as Cameron described. Um, and through, through Graham's Foundation Industry Consortium, we're already starting to see new collaborative projects being found and delivering results 
uh, across the board of the foundation in pursuit of new technology. Well, I'll throw in a little plug. There's there's 33 really nice examples on the Transforming Foundation Industry website. But 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 similarly, if if, if you if if you look at if you look at the sustainability consortium that, that that Graham was talking about and the activities down at MPI. I encourage listeners if if, they're sort of, if this, this piques their interest in any way at all, just go and look, and then you can. It's difficult for us to convey in this discussion all of those examples, but you can kind of see what that actually means in reality and what the impacts of some of them. Yeah, and there's a huge resource there. I think that's the other thing that that I, I think just encourages many people as possible to to when they have a problem, ask start asking people if they can solve that problem, because just in in the group I'm working with, they're not far off a thousand people. And, and if you try to rebuild the assets that they've built over the last 20, 30 years, it would cost you four or five hundred million pounds. And they're, they're open access assets. They're the nation's assets and people can can use them. I mean, we need to find the money to operate them, but but they're, they're there. And, and the research infrastructure in the EU is huge and, and very capable. And I think it's maybe that's another thing we need to do have ways of getting the right people to the right places because I think that's what these fellows have done in in my economizer project. They've found what they, they understand what the innovation centers can do. They understand what the academics can do. They understand what industry needs so that and there's only three of them and they've been unbelievably successful at just linking li- making the link that allows somebody to solve a problem they didn't know they could solve. Thank you. So guys just for Sort of a bit of a feel just for a bit of fun and it's out of left field and i know you won't any idea but what what's your personal favorite project that has come out of the network what what have you really enjoyed what made you go oh and why didn't we do that 20 years ago or whatever well i can tell you about my personal favorite project that we're working on at the moment which isn't the question you asked but then i am training to be a politician <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and I, and I mentioned it earlier, actually. So this, this biggest project that we've got is about zero carbon cement. And all of the time I was working, I've been working in the steel industry trying to decarbonize it. And um, I heard a podcast from Bill Gates a couple of years ago, and he was like, you know, um, still, weirdly, he said he'd been in a barbecue in San Francisco, and when people had talked to him about um, how to, you know, reduce carbon emissions, he said, well, you, you need to figure out how to do steel, and you need to figure out how, how, how to do cement. And that was the first time cement had really come across my radar. And then I looked into it and realised it looked impossible. I didn't know how we could possibly do it. Um, and then up comes um, Julie Allwood's team from the University of Cambridge with some really fantastic ideas for an alternative um, process to make green cement, which links together, um, you know, my first local industry with the cement industry to produce a really great green uh, building product. And what's been an absolute joy about this is it looked great on paper. It proved to be great in the laboratory, and it's now working really well at the pilot plant as well. So we can, we, we, you know, we can, we're getting fantastic results. So, so this looks like something we're going to be able to take from start to finish as a real amazing kind of British innovation success story. Um, and then what I want to see is the world's first green cement factory built in the UK too. But that seems up in so he's either okay, uh, but certainly somewhere in the UK will be fabulous. Um, so yeah, so it's it's been one of the most exciting projects I've ever worked on. Um, amongst our senior factory group, I think I'm actually delighted. That's really, I mean, it's the perfect example, isn't it, of industrial symbiosis, that one. I mean, if, if anybody wants to, knowing a little bit more about the project as I do, but if anybody wants to get into the details of that, they can, they can definitely look that one up. It's, uh, it's a really interesting, a really interesting. You asked about the network, uh, Catherine. So, I mean, from the point of view of the Network Plus, like I said, we funded 33 small projects 
And, and most of those are really about what we would call like a seed corner or a feasibility activity. It's difficult to achieve a lot um, with, with, with such a small amount of time, but we've actually been really impressed with some of the stuff that's come out of that. Um, so particularly some of the things around common challenges on so some novel uses of foundry sands, materials that come out of the, of the metals sector from a foundry perspective being used to heat store materials um, uh, for, for, for looking at some, um, uh, heat storage from an energy efficiency perspective. One of our favorite projects, I think, within the Network Plus is a project done by Pete in, in, in Liverpool, where he designed a, um, an AI um, uh, algorithm that was able to predict um, energy efficiency and quality behavior of, of the float glass process in, in NSG um, in St. Helens. Um, and, and that's you know, delivering a 30% carbon reduction that's actually been implemented, which for a very small six-month project is, is crazy. Um, there's, there's loads of different little examples that you could pick out, but I think there's... Any one of these, you can look at them and you can get excited about them. The question then is, I mean, even in even in Chris's very exciting case, the question then is the degree to which it will take off as a as a as a commercial going concern you know, and whether the environment exists. There's no shortage of things coming through the pipeline. We're almost flooded with them. I mean, and it's such an such an exciting time to be working in the foundation and if anybody's watching this and they're not working in it but they want to know a little bit more about it i can't stress this enough there's been a lot of pontificating going on for about 20 years yeah about work on decarbonization and totally restructuring trees and all that sort of stuff and now we're in a position where these investments are popping up on an almost weekly basis internationally where people are completely transforming their approach to and, and developing supply chains and there is no more uh, to get involved so we Catherine, to be honest, of us would probably go on for ages and ages and ages <laughs> about projects. Um, but um, so, so we can just reinforce, I suppose, on that basis. You can trust me that there's loads. Um, but uh, seeing them and commercial scale operation. But Graham, what are your favourites? Yeah. Yeah, well, well, I haven't got a favourite project. But, but I think that the, the biggest opportunity comes from this analysis and understanding of data. And that the, the float glass process one's an example of that. And there's a there's a team within CPI who who look at how they just looking at loads of data to get real value out of that to turn that data into information so it can make a difference. And I think we, we alluded to it a while back that that nearly all these plants that we work with and we understand gather huge amounts of data. But looking at that data, finding out what it means, and changing the way the plants operated, either just the existing plant to make it work better or how that could be the next plant is the, is the biggest opportunity because even very old plants can make nice new products if they understand their data and they apply it effectively. And, and I think that this whole area, I mean, people call it AI all the time. It's not necessarily the AI bit that's going to make the difference, but, but the understanding the data and how that data becomes nuggets of information that can make the plant operate. I think that's the most exciting thing that I, I see. Ultimately, is there anything else you want to share with our listeners today about the foundation industries? I think it's kind of been un- underlying tacit in what we said, that these are actually very exciting industries and they make very exciting products. And, and they're, they're not perceived as such by, by many people. So anybody that's listening that, that w- wants to get involved or feels that, that they need to understand more, then these are exciting industries to work in. I, I guess 
it's probably just building on that one from Graham, something that we haven't discussed, I suppose, as a, as a general theme is, is around diversity as well. So I think we've looked at these new skills challenges and we've looked at the new skills profile, the fact that we also want to encourage m- many more people to come into these. I think we should, I, I'm not going to end on a negative, but we should, we should, we should acknowledge, I think, that um, generally in the foundation industries and reports have been published or that have been funded by Innovate UK and others, you know, we don't have a, a diverse workforce when you compare it to some other sectors um, at the moment. But I can guarantee you, because I speak to these people every single day from, from multiple different foundation intersectors, they are absolutely passionate about making this place a very open and, and good place to work for, for people from all, from all backgrounds. And that's especially because we desperately need these people with these skills. And, and so we, we'd be mad, right, to, to close ourselves off to, to, one, to one group or another. And I'm already seeing the benefits of that in, the, in what I try to promote within the research projects that I'm involved in or that I lead. And we really see a, a diversity of individuals breeds a diversity of thought. And we're in this ever-changing environment for the foundation. We'll only benefit from that. And so I guess if there's something that I wanted to communicate to people that aren't familiar with it is that, you know, we are, you know, I'm thinking... Last night, I was listening to Tata's Women in Steel podcast, which gives you an idea of, of, of the different roles, responsibilities, career paths that people afford in that industry that they may not necessarily see as, a, as, as right for them looking at it from the outside in. And so I'd sort of like to reinforce that, the opportunities that lie there. And it's obvious for everyone, wherever they started out. In life. Thank you so much for joining Investigates today. I hope that listeners who weren't familiar with the foundation industries have learned a little bit more the incredible contribution they make economy and those of you who are familiar with learned something thank you to my guest and thank you to goodbye information about us visit iom3.org or to keep up to date with our latest news follow us on social media using at iom3 on twitter and at the institute of materials minerals and mining on linkedin if you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved please subscribe to hear more from us through apple google podcasts or spotify